If you're a B2B business, a B2B tech company, or a B2B marketer, you're in the right place. Coming to you from Studio 26, this is the Interesting B2B Marketers Podcast. Bringing you interesting contemporary takes, industry tips, guest interviews, and true stories from B2B marketers in the trenches. Now, here's your host, Steve Goldhaber. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Studio 26. Today, I'm joined by Clay Stelzer. Welcome to the show, Clay. Thanks, Steve. Glad to be here. And uh, for those of you who don't know Clay, he focuses on executive and team coaching. He's also the founder and CEO of a beautifully named company. I'm going to let you reveal the name, Clay, because I think not only the name is cool, but the naming idea and the science behind it. So I'm going to have you open up with that story. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. So the name of my company is 1560, one five in uh, numbers and then 60 spelled out. And when I started my company, I wanted something that would be kind of sexy, not just your average kind of coaching name, but I wanted it to be really representative and meaningful or meaningful in a way that I wanted it to attach to what we talk about and what we believe and how we serve others. And when I was thinking of a name, I I learned a fact that adults on average take 15 breaths a minute. And so in my mind, that means each of us has 15 great opportunities every 60 seconds to stop and wake up. And everything we do with the company is we help people begin to recognize their unconscious patterns. We all have these patterns that most of us are unaware of. And when we're not a if we're not paying attention, we can end up making decisions that lead us to outcomes that we don't want, both in our life and in our business. And that's really what we focus on within 1560. Nice. All right. And the reason why I've got you on this show today, this is a departure from our normal format because uh, we normally just talk to B2B marketers, but you're in a cool position where you are coaching these folks and you're helping them get better. So, so many times we think of like, how do I get better as a marketer? It's not top of mind for B2B marketers to be like, I need someone to help me. I need a coach. They usually come to like a, I need more technical knowledge or I need to understand a new part of the craft. So that's why I thought it would be cool to talk to you because you're you're in the minds of a lot of people every day and, and helping them have these moments. So maybe let's start there is just kind of like walk us through as you have these conversations with these marketers, what what are some things that are on their mind? And I, I assume that it's it's not a lot of marketing, right? It's probably a lot of like team dynamics and communication issues, office politics, things like that. Yeah. So I do work with a lot of marketers and the conversations that we have, you're right, are a little bit different than the typical marketing discussion. I hold them to be expert at what they do as marketers. Yes, I used to be in marketing. We used to do a lot of work together in marketing. I feel like I have a fairly you know, decent understanding of what leads to effective marketing. But uh, interesting enough, what got me into this coaching business that I'm in is when I was a marketing executive, I kept getting in my own way. I kept keeping myself from doing the brilliant work that I was actually able to do. Meaning I thought I was a marketing executive. I thought that's what my full-time job was. But when I got really clear and I woke up to some of my own stuff, I realized that my full-time job was actually pleasing everyone around me. Uh. Marketing. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Is that good or bad that that was, that was your job at the time? Well, uh, it can be good. Yeah. You know, I, you know, a lot of people that spend their time having 
you know, just pleasing everyone around them. I'll speak for yeah. myself. I did that for years and years and years. And I climbed the ladder. I was successful. I pleased my clients. I pleased my bosses, et cetera, et cetera. And then I went home and I found myself exhausted, anxious, and just depleted. It just, yep. uh, it was, it, w- it was not a fun way to live. I had everything I wanted on paper. Yet yep. I got home and I'm like, my God, what did I, what have I like, where did I go wrong? And so I hired a coach and I learned a little bit about my own patterns and how I was letting that get in the way of me actually focusing on being creative. And that's what I see with all kinds of marketing executives. My issue certainly is my issue, but human beings are designed biologically. We have survival strategies built into our brains to please others, to uh, blame others when things don't go right, or to check out or withhold your thoughts and feelings when we feel threatened in some way. And those are the very things that, again, I talk with lots and lots of marketers, and those are the very things that get in the way of them really flourishing. It's not that they're not brilliant technicians or marketers. Yeah. One thing I, here's my, here's my envy of your, of your career path right now is what's got to be cool about what you do is that you are talking to these folks and there's got to be moments where they just literally have that like light bulb epiphany where they just go, oh my God, I've never thought about it that way. And it kind of shakes their worldview. So that's got to be exciting for you to like help them get there. I love it. I mean, the, the reason I do what I do and helping others kind of wake up is because, well, one, I needed that in my own life. And two, I continue to need that in my life. It's really fun to help others see themselves in a way that they haven't so that they can drop what isn't serving them and spend more of their energy creating what they're wanting in their lives. It's like the best job in the world. Yeah. What's your typical uh, when you're helping someone, you know, an executive, let's let's come up with a with a, a fictional character. Let's refer to this person as Bob. And let's say Bob's at a tech company. What's your typical engagement start with? Are they are they like, hey, I've got 15 problems? Or is it no, here's my one thing I can't figure out? Like, how do you typically start off? Yeah, I love asking people what they want. Like, if you could change something right now, if you had a magic wand, what would you change? What do you want? And it seems like such a simple question and such an obvious question, but a lot of people have a hard time answering it. Hmm. I mean, if there's something that's like really on their mind and there's, they're very aware, I have a problem that I need to overcome, then we talk about that. But most executives, we all have issues, things that may be not what you might want them to be. But having people begin to open their periphery and envision, you know, if you could create a life for yourself, at work, in your career, at home, what would that be? That's my first question. And that always leads to all kinds of really interesting discussion and more questions. The second, the follow-up question to uh, what do you want is what do you believe is in the way of you having that right now? Mm -hmm. I want them to start getting clear and start thinking about what am I doing that's leading me exactly where I've gotten? And part of this process is helping them stop blaming the world and everyone around them, you know, for being where they are yeah. to begin taking responsibility for creating what they want. This is idea of shifting out of this, uh, victim mentality and mindset that we all can get yeah. in. Yeah. Shifting into this idea of being a creator. Whereas, you know, lots of people in the world, unless 
everyone else shows up a certain way. The company shows up a certain way. My clients show up a certain way. My copywriters, my team, et cetera, do things that I'm hoping them to do in a way that I want them to do it. I can't be happy or successful. Yeah. It's way more fun to live a life when you're empowered to make choices where you can create what you get. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you brought up the part about like being a victim. Let's so this is a good example. Something happens to you and you're really upset and you have every good reason to be upset. I'm going to, I'm going to drop a Tony Robbins line here. Cause I think I remember right. hearing this in a, in a video. He seems to be all over social media sometimes, but he kind of says, you know what, you're, you're going to have every day bad stuff happen to you and just make me this one promise, spend five minutes feeling sorry for yourself and angry. And he said, it's a normal emotion, get through it. But five minutes is all you should take. He's like, because if you don't, you're going to, you're going to spend hours or days being angry about it. And I think it's such a, it's an interesting lesson when I heard it, because it just helped me kind of realize I am in my own way, you know, like I don't have to be angry for an, for an hour if something bad happens. I can just say, all right, I went through it. I'm done. I'm not going to allow this thing, the privilege of angering me. And that's such a, it's such a hard thing to turn off, but I always try to go back to that advice. That was good advice. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's a couple things within that that I think are could be fun to talk about. So I love the idea that feelings aren't arguable or negotiable. If you're angry, there's anger here. And human beings, most of us, at least in our country, learn from a very young age to suck it up and to keep it in. And so what happens is when we do that, it just stirs away at us and it builds and it eats us alive and it repeats. We can get into patterns with some of this, some of this stuff. And when you think about babies, like a newborn baby or a, a young, you know, I don't know, a year or less, if they're upset or angry, what do they do? They cry, they scream, whatever. They get whatever their need is and then they stop and they're done with it. Same thing with dogs or animals. Like, you know, I take my dog for walks and if he gets spooked, the hair on the back of his neck lifts. And the next, very next thing he does is he will shake it out. Yeah. He will allow the anger to move through him. So when I work with clients and anger is here, it's like, okay, anger is here. So what do you want to do with it? And to your point, holding it in probably is not going to lead you to outcomes that you're wanting. And so I invite yeah. people to... Ugh, Move it out, just like a dog shaking. <laughs> if that means, yeah. you know, get a pillow and scream into the pillow, if that means get a tennis racket and pound your mattress for five minutes, like you're saying, that's the natural process that our body is wanting to do that. Yeah. Usually, when, so, I, you know, I don't know what Tony Robbins specifically was talking about, but it's real easy to repeat. Uh, not re Yeah, I mean, I guess to maintain the anger and to just stew and stew and stew if you're not doing anything with it, if you're not allowing it to move through you. Yeah, it's interesting. What do you think, you know, as you work with a lot of different folks, what are some of the themes that you're seeing? I mean, I imagine everything's, everyone's got a really specific thing, but when you step back after doing this for years, what do you see? Are they like the, yeah, here are the themes that I'm seeing that people might benefit from understanding. There's a few. Whenever we are upset or making bad decisions or blaming someone or being defensive or checking out or quiet quitting, there's lots of terms for how people are showing up at work. I like to help people understand what's underneath it. What's driving that behavior and that reaction. And the themes are, it's not necessarily a theme uh, with my clients, but it's just sort of, uh, I don't know, people that study this stuff, scientists, 
we'll say that whenever we have a sense that th one of three things is threatened in some way, we begin reacting. We begin behaving in ways that lead to outcomes we don't want. First is our security. So if someone says something, does something, and we are believing, I'm not going to be able to take care of my family, not going to be able to pay the mortgage, food on the table, water, shelter, et cetera, or job security. Uh, am I going to get the raise that I'm wanting? Am I going to get the promotion that I'm wanting? As soon as we sense that that may be threatened in some way, we do what's called in the model that I use, we go below the line and we get stuck in this reactive place. So that's the first thing I see across everyone. Yeah. When we feel our security is threatened, we react. Second thing, approval. Whenever we sense that people don't think we're smart enough, attractive enough, funny enough, our clients don't think we're the best on the team or our boss doesn't think we're all that good, whatever it is, we like to be liked. You know, a zillion years ago, if we were kicked out of our colony or tribe or whatever, human that was a death sentence for human beings. Yeah. Because humans can't hunt and gather and do everything they need to do. So as soon as we sense disconnection or a threat to being disconnected by people feeling negative uh, or feeling things about us that aren't necessarily positive, we get skittish and start reacting. And the third thing is control. As soon as we sense we don't have a say as to what's happening to us or the people around us, we go below the line and start reacting in ways that lead us to outcomes we don't want. So I see that regularly with all of my clients, all the marketing executives. Like if I'm coaching them and they're talking about a challenge that they're facing, first thing I'll do is I'll have them honor their reaction. So if there's anger here, great. Let's just be with that anger for a minute. If there's fear here, great. Let's be with the fear. And what's the belief underneath it all? Security, yeah. control, and approval. What are you believing you don't have or you're believing is threatened? And I'm telling you, you can line up 10, market, 10 marketing executives and talk about any of the challenges they're facing, whether it's yeah. managing their staff or handling clients or pick a topic. The threat that's leading them to the outcomes that they're not liking is going to be security, control, approval, or all three of those. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's so many looking back at like, my career before I started 26 characters and it was, it was more traditional corporate, you know, fortune 500 companies. The number of times that I was in a meeting with five, 10 people, all those things that you just discussed were so real and they drove a lot of the, the unspoken truth in the meeting. Meaning it's rare that anyone would actually discuss these things out loud out of fear of being kind of like, Oh, this, this person isn't good enough or they're not strong enough as a leader. Yeah. Yet that's what's driving all this stuff. Like when, when I have seen people or I've tried to open up about emotional things, like, you know, I think we're all just afraid because if we get this one wrong, we know there are consequences. So how do we get through that? And I think when you don't acknowledge those things, it's so much harder to get to those truths to actually make progress on something. And you yeah. don't really know where people stand. You don't, you don't know what's going on in other people's minds. Yeah. Well, most of the time, if you're below the line and there's something that's triggering you, you know, if you're at a group, if you're at a boardroom table with 10 others, we won't share how we're really feeling because, well, what would that mean about my approval? What would that mean about my security? It's, it's even more threatening yeah. to reveal what's actually going on with yeah. you. And so there, I rarely hold an expectation that someone's just going to all of a sudden start revealing what their experience is with the people around them. Instead, what I would recommend they do is have a conversation with those 10 people around, how do we want to be together as a team? Mm -hmm. What's going to help us thrive as a team? And if you can get a group of people like that committed to 
handling some of our dysfunction or some of the dysfunction when it shows up in a more effective way, and you're all co-committed to that, you all can begin to trust one another to be able to share what's showing up for them and drop the personas that we all have when we show up at work with put a big smile on our face. We don't say the things that are hard to say. Um, so usually I like to start there with a team and talk about what game do you want to play? How do you want it to be? How do you want it to feel to be on a team? Yeah. And it's also interesting is when I've worked with some exceptional leaders, I look back at the ones who are really good. They were that good because they could tap into the things that they that you've just discussed, right? They would kind of say, look, we can talk about this topic, but here's what I think is going on. And here's what I think I'm seeing and sensing. And when they were able to do that, it was almost like they were just speaking and leading in a way that it was like, yes, like you understand what's really happening here. You're acknowledging it. And I contrast that approach with more traditional leadership styles where it was really just around authority. It was like, hey, this is my role. I want to push this through and that's it. Like get it done. But I've always admired folks who can who can get to those different layers that you're talking about because you truly want to follow those people. You will follow them into any situation because they've related to you as a human, not just as you know someone who is in charge of X function at the company. I had the same experience as you. My favorite managers throughout my careers, uh, throughout my career, are the ones that created space for us to be human beings mm -hmm. to bring in what it, you know what's really going on with us. Yeah. When, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask someone or a group of people is I have them fill in the blank. If you were to really know me now, you would know. And you have mm. someone just talk for a couple of minutes and you have everyone just listen without asking questions, offering feedback, just witnessing that person. However, you know, sharing whatever it is that's really true for them in the moment. Yeah. And incredibly powerful. Some it's of these, some of the, you know, it's, I'm a coach, I have a business and we offer these services for clients. Some of this stuff seems so obvious. Mm -hmm. I feel, you know, I can actually, I can go below the line a little bit sometimes thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm just asking some pretty basic questions. Here. <laughs> <laughs> but people don't ask those questions and they yeah. don't hold space for people to feel comfortable answering those questions. Yeah. But I got to tell you, you get a group of people in a room for an hour and you open space to navigate some of those things and just to allow people to be seen, it can be transformational for a team. Yeah. With such little effort. You know, it's I've, it's fascinating to kind of dissect why that is built into so many companies these days. And it's, you know, for a while I thought like, well, it was the... It was the military-led inspirational leadership style or the manufacturing era, which was all about, you know, output and throughput and quality and hierarchy. Uh, and it's fascinating to see us evolve. You know, I, I still think there are moments of that legacy leadership approach that are there. It's almost like the comfort zone for a lot of people where it's kind of like, well, if I don't know really how to lead this group of people, I can default to that. And then it kind of... That's the command and control approach or the authoritarian approach. Yeah. Uh, it's fascinating to see how that stuff is pre-wired in many ways into, into leaders. But I definitely think for the last couple of years, there has been that awakening of you're not just leading people, you're leading humans. Like these are, these are people who are very unique and, and delicate people. And they, you know, yeah. you have I to understand so. where they're your, coming from. Your marketing brilliance just showed up. You're not just leading people, you're leading humans. Is that what you said? Yeah. 
I love that. I mean, like, that's the reframe. You should write that down, write some content. Maybe I'll buy it from you. All right. I'll get the patent attorney <laughs> on the phone, see what we can do there. I'm going to yeah, go really back to cool. something you said before that we're all pre-wired, uh, you know, going back thousands of years. And I, I jokingly will tell my wife, Carolyn, if I've done something to have her roll her eyes at me or get mad, I'll jokingly say, hey, I'm just running the Caveman 2.0 software. Like it's it's not it's the new version, but it's really it's still Caveman software. And I and I'm kind of fascinated with those things that we are just pre-wired for. And how do you I guess the first step is understanding what those pre-wires are. And then once you do know it. So it'd be good to get your opinion. Like, how do you help people get to those moments of like caveman realization? Yeah, well, at least so seems like you have a little bit of awareness when you're just showing up with like your primal instincts driving your behavior. Yeah, I show up at a on a call with a client and I and I say, what's what's happening? What are we talking about today? And they'll bring up a challenge. I'm trying to there's a number of things we could talk about right now. So first thing I'll do is I'll ask them. So are you in a reactive state, caveman state, or are you open and curious and at ease with the world around this challenge? And the answer is always, yeah, I'm below the line. I'm reacting. I'm really like fired up about this thing, believing I'm right, wanting to blame everyone else, et cetera, et cetera. Then I'll take it a step further. Again, back to the Tony Robbins thing. I want them to complain about the issue as big as they can. So, you know, and there's this thing called the drama triangle. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on it, but here's the quick overview. When we are below the line in a reactive state, human beings reliably show up playing three different roles. The first thing we do is we play the victim. And when we are playing the victim and we just show up with this posture like, ho-hum, you know, oh my gosh, it rained on my birthday. I wanted to go, you know, have a picnic with the kids. Or, oh my, or, or the client didn't choose us. It's just like this, huh? Like yeah. we can't be again, again, we can't be okay unless everyone shows up a certain way. So I have them ham it up. Can you just be a victim or how are you? being? A <laughs> I like that. Yeah. We want to make it big so we can begin to see ourselves in this caveman unconscious pattern. Yeah. We, have. we all have this. Next thing is we show up as the villain and the villain blames people. Like, it's because of you. It's because of you. It's because of you. You're an idiot. The client's an idiot. We're pointing a <laughs> finger. If I feel like this, there has to be a reason for it. And I'm going to yeah. find it and point a finger at whoever or whatever it is, including myself. We can beat ourselves up. Clay, you idiot. I can't believe you said that. You know, we start whipping ourselves. And then the last thing we do is we show up as the hero. And when we show up as the hero, most marketing executives do this all the time where because we're in a reactive state, we'll, instead of delegating, oftentimes we'll say, you want to know what? Don't worry about it. I'll do it. I'll get done in half the time with half the headache. The yep. quality will be better. Or we just get so upset about everything. We just, you know, someone throw me a beer at five o'clock. I need to numb out. <laughs> Netflix, Ben and Jerry's, whatever your thing is, we all have yeah. our things. Yeah. Now, listen, none of these things are bad. These are our natural survival in instinctual strategies. But all of those things... Uh, lead to dysfunction and drama on our teams and in our organizations. Yeah. And so I help people begin to see, oh my gosh, you know, I see my pattern here. I'm just seeing myself as a victim, just seeing how everything sucks. And then I'm blaming that person. And then I'm swooping in and taking care of myself for just by napping, playing video games. And then when that buzz wears off, I'm right back to where I started yep. with the same issue. So I help them see what they're doing and the price they're paying for 
doing what they're doing because there's always a price when we're blaming being a victim and being a hero. And then I see if they'd be willing to accept themselves for just being a, a human being that is a descendant of cavemen. Yeah. Like, That's yeah, all, yeah, of course, of course you're doing that stuff. Now, the cool thing about that is once you can find some way to accept yourself for having created what you've created unconsciously, now you have an option. Now you're a choice. And the question is, so what are you willing to do differently now with that awareness? Yeah. How often can you, do you see that transformation when you work with different marketers? I mean, I, I imagine some, some have big moments and then they'll come back and say, Hey, here's, here's an update. It's been two weeks since we last connected where you've got other people who are just like, uh, not doing it. Like, what is it like to work with those different types of uh, clients? Well, there's this idea in coaching. You want to meet people where they are. If someone is unwilling to see themselves or unwilling to be coached, it's probably not a good idea for them to be coached. Yeah. Not helping them, not helping me, not fun for me. So maybe, I, so actually I probably wouldn't have them as a client. Yeah. Before anyone hires me, we do, we um, have some, sessions, we call them chemistry sessions, to ensure that that person is cool with how I'm going to show up as a coach and I'm cool with how they're going to show up as a client. Yep. And if I see that they're willing to play ball and willing to take a look at themselves, a good look at themselves, in the spirit of growth and transformation, then we're going to have some fun together. So if I'm sitting, you know, and sometimes we have bad days and sometimes we're just unwilling to see ourselves or to acknowledge it. And then, so I'll just say, okay, so we're just going to end here. You just let <laughs> yeah. you sit, sit with all of what this experience is for you. If you're willing, maybe yeah. you could learn something about yourself from this experience, but I'm not going to push you into anything that you're not willing to do. It's interesting. So I'm going to, there's two, two thoughts I have. Um, the first was the chemistry session. I really love that. I, I'm such a believer in there is no such thing as a bad client, only a bad prospect. And I think anyone who's in the B2B space that has, is in the service provider industry, that's you've got to flesh that out. We get so excited about, oh my God, this is a great client to have. The money is good that we just become drunk on that and we don't actually understand if they're going to be a good client. And then the other thing, we talked about people not being self-aware or open. I remember years ago, I was in a, I was like in a leadership group talking about managers. And it was funny. There's probably 20 people in the room and the, the facilitator opened up with something along the lines of 53% of all employees self-report they have bad managers, right? And then he, he looked around the room and it was like, raise your hand if you're one of those 53% you know, bad managers. And of course, no one raised their hand, but it was a fascinating point he was making which is you don't have the self-awareness. Everyone, you know, it's very rare for someone to be like, yes, I'm the bad manager. Here's why I suck. Uh, I don't care that I suck, right? So there, I always thought that was a really effective opening technique to really understand about your own performance uh, as a leader is you don't know. It's rare. I mean, there's 360 reviews and someone can give you feedback, but it's, it's very rare how, how you just don't really know. You know, like I've looked back in my career, I've certainly grown. I look back at a previous version of myself when I was managing people and I can go, that wasn't good. Like maybe there were some things that were good, but then the other things were not right. It's, so it's just like this, this constant path to awakening and you don't know where you are. You don't know where you're done on that path. What I think I'm good at today, may I suck that, suck at it 10 years from now, right? Like it's just, it's that unknown of, of personal development that's always fascinated me. Yeah, right. I mean, oftentimes it's, we just need someone to hold up a mirror for us. 
Yeah. I think in part, that's what coaches do. Not in part. I think most coaches do that. Yeah. It doesn't help my clients if I'm not being incredibly candid with them. Yeah. About what I'm seeing. Yeah. And then, you know, there are, you mentioned there are 360 feedback tools. There's different feedback exercises and processes. If you're wanting feedback, if you're wanting to know how you're showing up as a leader, if I have a client telling me that, I would see how willing they would be to go out and get that feedback. Yeah. Yeah. That feedback is really hard to get in the spirit of it's got to be done in a safe way. When I wrote my book a couple of years back, I, I described the, the dynamic of when the chef comes out in the restaurant and asks the patrons of the restaurant for feedback, like, oh, how was the food tonight? 95% of the people, oh, yeah, it was good. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. And, and the chef is never going to know really what was going on. Yeah. But the chef might think, well, everyone likes, everyone seems to like the food, right? So it's, it's sometimes not just who's asking, but how it is collected. Yeah, right. How is it, posi- well, and how is it positioned? So in the spirit of helping people step up and become the creator and step out of this sort of victim consciousness where it's like, I can't get feedback. It's hard to get feedback. You know, you can begin to play with a couple of things. So if you're just wanting feedback from an individual person, you could maybe set up the conversation in a way to, uh, I mean, you can never control the other person, but you can set up why it is that you're wanting the feedback, uh, why it's important to you. And, you know, I, I just imagine having a conversation with someone saying, personal growth is really important to me. And the only way I can grow is if I'm getting candid feedback. And in fact, if you do nothing else for me this year, the most loving thing you could do for me is to tell me, in your view, whether you're right or wrong, and I won't hold anything you say as being right, but what could I be doing to be more successful? As candid as you can be with me, I will appreciate you that much more because I have no other way of knowing what I need to do to be more successful. And so, you know, I mean, that's kind of a intense maybe way to present an idea, but, you know, that kind of that kind of uh, forwardness or, or placing that much intention on why it is that you're wanting feedback and how important it is, I think you can get different results. Most people are way uncomfortable offering critical feedback. Yeah, They're below the line showing up as the hero. They're saving the other person from getting an ouch. Like, oh, if I was to tell that person really how I felt, like if I was at the restaurant and the chef came out and I did not like the meal, I'm going to save the chef by lying to him so he doesn't have to, he or she or they, doesn't have to feel the sting of whatever it is that I'm saying. But maybe mm-hmm. maybe even more importantly, I'm going to save myself. I'm going to avoid a situation where he thinks I'm a jerk. And so what happens is we create drama. We create relational disconnection when we are scared and then we show up as the hero. So anyway, yeah. so feedback is so important. I think for teams, a lot of my work working with executive teams is, again, having the discussion, you know, what kind of team do you want to be? You want to bullshit each other and just tell each other the positive things? Or do you all really want to commit to personal development and growth? Yeah. All right. I've, I've, you've triggered us a, a story about feedback in my brain. I have to share it. And this involves uh, Jack Welsh. I will, not, I will not refer to him as legendary Jack Welsh. Uh, he's, okay. he's, just, he's just Jack, right? He had a, a person who was running a division and she had a reputation for not listening. She would cut people off. So he set up a phone call with her and he just kind of, you know, one or two minutes of just kind of banter. And then he asked her a question and she started talking. I guess this, he had an old school phone, right? Um, 
and he slammed the phone down, ended the phone call. And he had told Jack Welch, his te- he told his assistant that this was going to go on. So the person calls his assistant back in and said, oh, I was just cut off. I don't know what happened. Can you put me through to Jack? Jack's assistant said, he did that on purpose. He wants you to know what it's like when you cut people off. And it, it was such a ruthless way to give feedback. But part of me was like, that's a really powerful way is she knew that feeling of like, what? My brain isn't understanding what just happened. Um, it's been an interesting story. I don't know if that was in his biography or somewhere else, but I, I always enjoy instead of just like saying something to someone, trying to trying to create a real scenario where they experience what you're trying to communicate. Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating. I haven't heard that story. I would love to hear from the woman to hear how that landed for her. <laughs> yeah. Like, what was that like? And I, yeah, it's funny. I just got off a call with a client who he was upset with someone that was working for him. And he did something that was kind of ruthless to prove a point. And I just was, you know, first question as well. Are you happy with the outcome? Check in with your body. Do you feel at ease with what happened? Or is there something that's in the way of that? Something that you regret? Maybe that you did what you did. He did what he did from a reactive state showing up as the villain. Anyway. The, the next question I asked him was, did you do what you did? And I would ask this of Jack from a place of caring. Like, was that strategy because you really cared about her? Or was that mm-hmm. strategy you just wanted to show her that she's wrong? Mm-hmm. And so there's this idea that we can do anything from above or below the line. So I'd be real curious. And that's going to communicate to the other party. So if Jack really was coming from a place of love and care, yeah, probably not. <laughs> knowing knowing probably his leadership not. stories, yeah. So I'm I'm guessing he's not going to get the result he's looking for. If those things are done with love and care and then communicated with the other, then there's an opportunity to create really cool connection between the two. I love being provocative and like being creative with feedback. I think that's super cool. I would just um ask whoever was coming up with new ideas like that, from where are you giving that feedback? Are you trying to prove her prove to her that she is wrong and you're right, this defensive mm-hmm. state of mind, or are you actually doing it because you believe it's the most caring thing to do? And that format is really going to serve her. All right. What have we not talked about, Clay, that you think is important for the audience to know as it relates to kind of like self-improvement, how they can become a better marketer? You know, it's, so what do marketers do? If I'm going to start asking, I'm going to turn the, the microphone right. around. Here. I'm going to start asking right. you questions. What's the number one thing that leads to successful marketing? Uh, I'd say usually uh, your ability to hit a certain metric, whether that's a sales metric or you know a mind a mindset shift where you can say, all right, we we did this thing and now we know people think differently about our company. And my sense is the way to do that is by really understanding your audience. Yep, I'm like to deeply understand them. I see this so regularly with marketers that they don't have nearly the curiosity about the people on their teams as they do about the people they're marketing to. And so I would say, how can you take all of the skills that you're applying to your marketing work to truly understand your audience and bring that curiosity to your team? And so I've seen it over and over and over again, where you have around the table, 10 extremely brilliant marketers, but there's no attention placed on the empathy and compassion that each of them are doing individually as they think about their Yep. Their target audience. And so it's, and talking shop a little bit. So prior to this company, 1560, I worked for a large software company and I built 
a team coaching practice where every one of their innovation teams stopped the work for a minute and discussed how are we being together as a team. And it's really no different than doing primary research to understand your audience that you're marketing to. Let's learn about each other and talk about what's going to serve us. How do we want to speak with one another? How do we want to make hard decisions? If conflict shows up on a team, how do we want to handle that? It's just learning about each other so we can create something, create connection, which ultimately is what marketers are wanting to do yeah. with their audience. So it's, it's a little bit ironic, and I just kind of, it's helpful to remind people of that. And again, I just think it's really important for people to know team coaching and individual coaching, there are some little things that can be done that can make a massive impact on the culture of a team yeah. or organization. How often do you think that people there, you know, you've got all kinds of teams that people are on. And I just kind of am curious about how many teams aren't really teams, meaning, yeah, you're working with people, but there is no chemistry. There's no discussion of like the values of that team. I mean, I, I would say a majority of the teams, unless there's like, you know, hey, here's a team of five people that are going to work with each other for the next six months or a year. I, I think that like there's so many different teams that you're part of that most teams don't get to that level of conversation, you know, and, and they just they do the job, but they don't gel and they don't have as much fun probably as they could. I mean, it, is that accurate or, or do you think uh, people do get to that level? Well, I think with some care and intention, people can create really beautiful connection and trust. And I don't think that's easy for a lot of people. It's for most folks, it can be really safe to just do it on your own. But if you study innovation and you learn about this thing, you know, creative friction, creative friction is what leads to new ideas. It's having a trusting relationship with another creative partner where you can disagree with one another mm -hmm. and you can bat around ideas. Yeah. And yeah. that from from that can come really inspiring yeah. creativity. It's I'm glad you brought that up, creative friction, because I, I will not name the name of the agency, but they were just call them world renowned for creativity. Uh, yeah. And I got to work with them every now and then. And on multiple times, I had seen them, two creative people duking it out verbally, just like that's not going to work. This is why it's not that. I mean, I was like, I've never seen this raw emotion before. And then I saw it happen again, you know, in a couple of days. And then I asked about it and they said, no, this is actually, we encourage this. This is a good thing. And yes, it's, it's hard to witness, but it's just a thing. And I, and I, I've seen that also in, um, I want to say part of like the Pixar creative process. It's that yeah. they encourage, there are meetings to be like, this is when we just duke it out for the ideas. And it's, and you do that. You, I think you've got to be very careful because like everyone who's doing it knows that it's normal and then it's just done. And then you kind of look at it and you, and you say, well, all right, what happened in that process? But it's fascinating for me to witness that. Yeah. So if I was going to do that with a team, again, I always think it's, it's nice to set up the rules of the game that you're about to play. So we're just going to, well, one, what do we need to be able to have a, an experience that is productive? If we're going to start openly kind of batting around the ball, I think that can be a, an important conversation. Mm -hmm. And then again, I, you know, anything can be done from a place of reactivity and fear or a place of openness and creativity. And so I love the idea of creative friction. And can you just get curious about it all without needing to die on your sword, proving to the other person you're right about it? You can be passionate about your idea, but would you be willing to hold it loosely and let go of it? 
So it's just the mentality. It's the mindset that people take to that. And if you know that everyone's playing the same game and it's uh, you really all care about each other in the process, those fireworks, that's where the good stuff happens. Yeah. All right. Awesome. I like it. I like, I like that. That's where we're going to end is if you can get to the fireworks, that's where the good stuff happens. So Clay, I want to thank you for joining us today. I've enjoyed talking with you and how can people reach out to you if they're interested in working with you? Well, the website is uh, 1560.com. So the number one and then number five and then 60 spelled out.com. My email address is clay at 1560.com. Either way, that would be a, a good starting point and um, it shouldn't be too hard to find me. All right. Thanks again, Clay. And thanks everyone for joining us on the show today. Take care. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for tuning in to the interesting B2B Marketers podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. If you found value in today's episode, please help grow the podcast by sharing with others and leaving a review. We'll see you next time.